Um, if this is uh, the first time you're joining us or you haven't been with us the last few weeks, we are in a three-week journey uh, or series that we're calling Journey to Renewal. Now, if you haven't been able to join us, we're looking at the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Let me give you a little bit of where we've been. So in 1 Kings 18, Elijah's at the height of his success. His ministry is fruitful. Uh, he's hitting on all cylinders. It's going great. Um, but then God brings Elijah on a journey that he probably wasn't expecting, one where he is renewed and revived by God himself for the season of ministry ahead. So our prayer and what we're asking God for in this time is that God would bring about personal renewal, that we'd start to lay a foundation for that in our lives in the days ahead so we can, by God's grace, be part of what one author calls renewal gone viral in seeing that go massively, not just in our lives, but in our city all around us. So last week, we looked at the highly emotional experience of Elijah when, as I like to say, he came to an end of himself and how that is such a necessary part of the journey for us to be renewed by God, where sometimes God humbles us and we come to an end of ourselves, where we recognize our high need for him. Now this week, we're going to look at an often overlooked portion, not only of this passage, but I believe uh, an often overlooked passage in what it means to be renewed and how it prepares us for renewal. And that's the portion that I'll call rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you. You are here. You are among us. You are um, giving us the easy yoke that only you can provide. So we come with all the things happening this week, the busyness, the tiredness, the excitement, the joy, the gladness, um, and the pain and sadness that we have probably experienced throughout the week. And we just ask, Jesus, would you meet us? Would you, as the Psalms say, renew us again? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, during my junior year of high school, I had this awesome opportunity uh, to go on a trip with about 30 of my classmates to what we call the East Coast Tour. So imagine 30 friends and like three teachers going to four cities uh, across the Northeast. So we went to Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Boston, and Manhattan. So we went touring the sites of the American Revolution on a bus seeing Lexington and Concord. We went to the Liberty Bell eating a really authentic Philly cheesesteak. Uh, you can go ahead and pass on that one. Sorry, Justin. Um, and saw the beautiful, beautiful monuments of Washington, D.C. It was, it was marvelous. But the highlight for me was going to visit Manhattan. So as someone who was born in Manhattan, so on Saturday, it was a Sabbath actually, Saturday, October 20th, in a Jewish hospital called Mount Sai on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, this little guy was born. Well, I wasn't so little. I was 10 pounds, 4 ounces. So moms are just groaned just even thinking of that number. Um, so I was born there. So going there was really important. Like, I loved it. It was really impactful. But it was also impactful because we went the spring of 2002. So if, you're in, if any history people are in here, you're doing the math. That's just six months after the attacks of 9-11. So I remember walking down the streets for blocks, seeing missing person signs of people that were there, like the cards from people all over the world, walking to the, what is now the 9-11 Museum and Memorial, and just seeing this massive gaping hole that went like hundreds of feet down, it looked like. It was just 
unbelievably awe-inspiring. But you can imagine nine days, how exhausting of a trip that was. I mean, it was wonderful cities. We went to Broadway shows. I saw Lion King on Broadway, which was awesome. Um, late nights, uh, went to a jazz club one night, and I, unbe unbelievable. But I was tired. And this was the first time that I realized that I could be in danger while I was tired. But I wasn't in danger for my life. I was in danger from my friends. So one night, uh, it was the last night that we were there. I was hanging out in a hotel room with one of my friends. And I, without even realizing it, I curled up into a little ball and I fell asleep on the edge of one of my friend's beds. They woke me up a few minutes later, uh, what I felt like a few minutes later, uh, woke up and then they'd say, hey, go, go ahead and go back to your room. It's time to get some sleep. Well, it wasn't until I got back to my room that I realized that I was barefoot. I was like, that's weird. I don't remember that part. But then I looked down and I was all of a sudden now the owner of the most fashionable set of toenails that had been on the East Coast when they were now bright pink with purple polka dots. Thank you so much for that. The next day, our last day of the trip in a charter bus going to the airport, um, I am still exhausted. I'm still tired. And so I'm in the back. I curl up into a little ball and I lean up against the window and I fall asleep. One thing if uh, you didn't know is I could probably fall asleep anywhere. It used to be a saying in my house, like you can tell we're in good relationship if you're over one night and I just fall asleep on the couch while you're there just because I love you and I, yeah, that's just, there you go. So I fall asleep. I'm in the charter bus and I wake up and all of a sudden surrounding me were all my friends and they were all holding, do you remember the old disposable cameras? All us old people remember that, right? You're able to like, when we had to put them in an envelope and send them to Costco and then they would send pictures, right? Not like our kids like, oh, let me see your phone. I want to see the picture. No, we had to wait. We had patience. It was good for our souls. Well, anyways, I'm surrounded by all these friends, and, and I'm seeing them all. I'm like, what's going on here? Well, I, I open my eyes to not only see my friends, but discover that there's this little paper bowl that they so nicely fashioned for me on my shoulder. But this now little bowl was covered in spit. I had been drooling so bad that somebody, I don't know who did it, but somebody identified, hey, look at Justin back there. And they were just trying to help me not get everything soaking wet. But they also had signs on my head. It was one of those things. My tiredness had put me in danger of ridicule from my friends. Now, this was a tired that came from a good trip. Uh, lots of great activities. Some, as I'm talking about even now, I will remember for the rest of my life. But there are times when we can be tired not from good things, but we can be dangerously tired from long-term sources of exhaustion. Ruth Haley Barton, in her book, Invitation to Retreat, and also her other book, Invitation to Silence and Solitude, give us a breakdown between what she calls good tired versus dangerously tired. She says this, good tired is the poured out feeling we experience after a job well done or an unusually intense season of activity. Now think of a time in the past few weeks, even the past few months, whether it's at the end of a day or the end of a work week, and you look back and you just feel like satisfied. You can just exhale, where you're like, I did exactly what God wanted me to do. I, I 
I did it with everything I had, and it was, I'm just thankful that I got to be part of it. Now that is a good tired, and good tired is a good thing. We are to expend ourselves physically, emotionally, mentally for the things that God has called us to. However, we can go beyond being good tired into places where we're unable to function at the best, at our best, or even at all. This is what we'll call dangerously tired. Barton continues, she says this, dangerous levels of exhaustion usually accumulate over a longer period of time which we are consistently living, listen to this, either beyond our limits, functioning outside of our giftedness, or not paying attention to the sources of exhaustion. This is not good tired after good times or good work. This is tired because we're not paying attention. We're living beyond ourselves. And we're not paying attention to the state of our hearts and our lives. I think this is where we find Elijah in our story. He's not good tired after a good day's work, although he just finished the highlight of his ministry. As we looked at last week, we saw the emotional heaviness of it. So Elijah got to this place of being dangerously tired. It may have been from the physical run that he had just done, but he was at the end of himself. And we saw last week he had written a suicide note. He was done, ready to die. And although there was some likely good and tired that was mixed into this, his emotional reaction that we saw last week indicates that he was dangerously tired. So what happens in the story? The angel appears. And notice the angel does not offer this profound spiritual insight. Or the angel doesn't give this new thought that will radically change Elijah's mind. He doesn't open, or the angel doesn't open the Bible and say, let's look at the texts. What does the angel do for Elijah in this uh, part? The simplicity that the angel offers is astounding. What, is it, what does it offer? Sleep. Eat. Hydrate. Repeat. Because the angel doesn't do it just once. This happens two times. He's, Elijah was so tired, he curled up under the broom tree, fell asleep, and the angel had to wake him up and offer what was on the table, this fresh baked bread and a glass of water. The angel obviously didn't know Elijah was gluten-free, but, you know, it wasn't modern day. Now, if you were to encounter someone in that spot, dangerously tired, If you were the angel, imagine with me for a moment, you were to wake up this person that you see living a life beyond their own limits and dangerously exhausted. What would be your response to the person? Would you try to gospel them to change their beliefs? Would you try, albeit unintentionally, to shame them? That How could you allow yourself to get there in the first place? Didn't you know that you should be getting more rest? What would be the balm that you would offer to this tired and defeated soul? Now in our day, it's not hard to imagine that many people are experiencing a dangerous level of tiredness. Have you ever looked at your calendar and that you even start to anticipate being tired just by looking at your calendar? Like, okay, what's my week look like? And you just see it and you're like, 
you don't like, oh, you get this excited feeling. You're like, ugh. Just by looking at your calendar. Now, this could be from jobs trying to take every ounce of our energy. It could be from trying to faithfully follow Jesus on his mission in a very tough environment that we live. Whatever it may be, we are prone as a society and as individuals to um, live beyond our limits without even knowing it. If you're a parent, you've also signed up to be a taxi cab driver at least a few nights a week with coaches and instructors that are continually wanting more for you and asking your kids to be part of more stuff. We're doing too much, we're too busy, and, for, and we're doing it often for too many people. This is living beyond ourselves. Now what happens to us when we get dangerously tired? At best, we won't live up to the full potential God has for us. Likely, we're prone to wanders of area of relief or coping that don't really provide rest. Insert picture of iPhone and every social media post ever right there. I'm tired. I'll death scroll. Right? At worst, what happens to us? At worst, we find ourselves doing things that we never imagined because we didn't take the time to pay attention. Now, these are external sources of exhaustion, right? Your parents, your as parents, your teachers, jobs, mission, all these external sources. But what are the internal sources? What's the things often going inside of us that allow us and lead us to these areas of exhaustion? Barton does about seven of them. I'm going to say three. Here's three areas um, or sources of our exhaustion. Number one, when I have way more oughts and shoulds than get-tos. What's the source of my exhaustion? When I have more oughts and shoulds. Now, as we grow in our faith, we bump into a lot of oughts and shoulds. You, you understand what I'm saying? Like, I ought to do this. I should do this. I often think of discipleship, which we're called to as our mission of making disciples who make disciples. I often think of discipleship as parenting. And, it's, and the younger the child or the younger the person in the faith, the more direct correction has to happen in discipleship. It's kind of the do this, don't do that, right? Like how many of us have young children or have had young children where we don't get to sit down and have philosophical questions about why they do what they do? They just need to learn, do this, don't do that. Now, there's a level of discipleship that that's really good. Like, we learn by imitation. We ought to do this. We ought to do that. We should do this. But as we grow, it must become more about focusing on the changes of our hearts, not just our actions. We can become dangerously tired when we don't transition into a new stage of our discipleship beyond what we ought to do and what we should do. And we get tired when we um, don't focus on the deeper levels of our hearts that are motivating these actions. Now, I want to be clear. There are dynamics in our lives where we don't want to do something, and we ought to do them. Last week, we talked about how our emotions do not determine our faithfulness to God. There are oughts, that are good to us. We ought to obey Jesus. I'd hope you'd expect to hear me say that today. Okay? We ought to do that. 
But if we continually do it from a life or a sense of obligation, I have to, we're not focusing on the motivators that are in our hearts that will allow us to go from ought to to get to. Following Jesus, the goal of it is that we desire what he desires. We want what he wants. When our hearts and his heart for us is in alignment. Now, that's the goal, but the reality is sometimes we're not all there in all areas of our life. We can become dangerously tired when we don't focus on the places of our heart that will lead us where we get to follow Jesus, where we get to love our neighbor, where we get to share our faith, where we get to be part of God's work in the world through your jobs. When our hearts aren't transformed and we only focus on the oughts, we will tend to function out of our flesh rather than out of our faith. So the first area of exhaustion is we have more oughts and shirts than get to. Second, when I perform from what I think I should be able to do, then who God created me to be. This is what Barton said when we function outside of our giftedness. The, the metaphor of the body is super helpful here. So God created each and every one of us with specific gifts and abilities that are to be used in the service of others. That last part, I think, is lost in a lot of the conversation around personality tests. It's about self, it's like, this is who I am. It's like, no, this is who you are for the sake of others. That's love. That's, that's living in line with the gospel. But we can become dangerously tired when we no longer function out of how God designed us, but we are... Um, motivated by something that we feel we ought to be good at or that we see others doing or because the need to do it is so high and overwhelming. Let me give you an example. For instance, this, this is the body. You are a kidney. And you look over at a liver. I don't know if the kidney's close to the liver, but just use your imagination, okay? I probably should have looked at anatomy and saw what organs are close to one another. But you're following me here, okay? Your kidney. The doctors are just shaking their head like, Justin, Justin. So you're a kidney, and you look at over the liver like, man, that's cool what they do. I'm going to start doing that. It sounds absolutely foolish when I use that, right? But how many times have you looked at another person and their giftings and their, their skill sets, and you're like, I like what they got more than what I got. And so you start to say, hey, I like that. I'm going to start doing the work of a liver. How do you think that's going to go? The, not only are you going to suffer as a kidney is supposed to do liver, kidney things, but the whole body's going to suffer because you think that you should be able to do something that you're not good at. I'm going to take it an, uh, at another angle for, for this. Um, it could be that you are a liver and you, or your kidney, and you see the liver not functioning in the way the liver is supposed to function. So what do you do? I'm going to do both. I'm going to be a kidney and a liver. Well, how do you think that's going to go? Same idea, the same outcome. So when we are thinking, we're performing, we're not being who God's created us to be. 
when we think we should do something because somebody else has it and we have a little bit of jealousy or when somebody else isn't doing their job and you step in and do both. Okay? That's a source of our exhaustion. Now, often this can happen because of someone else's expectations of us. Like they say, hey, you're re- like, you know and you've been affirmed as a kidney and somebody says, man, but you really look like a liver. And then you internalize that and you say, oh, this must be who I am because of what that one person said. We internalize their expectations and then we start to perform out of the expectations they've placed on us. You should be able to do this. You should be able to fill in the blank. It's the source of our exhaustion in the body of Christ. Number three, what are the sources of our exhaustion? When I can't say no to opportunities to serve and be available to others. Living on mission and serving other people can be quite exhilarating. Sometimes even addicting, right? When you see people and when you see God use you to serve another person and encourage them, build them up, when you're functioning as a kidney and you see the effects of that and how it blesses so many things, that is wonderful. To serve people in their time of need, to share the gospel is an amazing privilege. However, when you and I don't have healthy boundaries in place, we can often lead to a place where we are dangerously tired Because you're saying yes to things that you're not supposed to say yes to and not doing only what God has called you to do. You're out seven nights a week. You overlook your family to serve your neighborhood. Or you don't have the space in your own life to meet with God on a regular basis. You overdo what you are called by God to do. This is where, and this is a little bit of a a promo for where we're going in a couple weeks. This is where a rule of life is really, really helpful. A rule of life is kind of a standard, uh, like an intentional time where you get to determine before you're asked what you're going to say yes to and what you're going to say no to. It's knowing, like, these are our intentional ways that we're going to choose to live as a family. And I'm going to make sure that this is happening and these things are not going to get in the way of what I know I'm supposed to do. That's coming in a few weeks. So, are there times in your calendar that are blocked off? Do you as a family have a regular time together that's sacred and that nothing gets in the way? Are there nights, and this I'm, I'm looking in the mirror here, just for the record. Are there nights where you refuse to go out? Will you say, no, 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 I'm, I gotta, I'm with my family. I'm here. I need to rest. Is there time in your schedule that is only for the purpose of relating and abiding in Christ? Thomas Merton says this, some of us need to discover that we will not begin to live more fully until we have the courage to do and see and taste and experience much less than usual. Soak in that for a second. Living fully means sometimes doing less. There are times when in order to keep, he continues, there are times when in order to keep ourselves in existence at all, we simply have to sit back for a while and do nothing. And all my introverted friends say, amen. Amen. 
and all my people that prefer extroverts and say, I'm leaving. No. <laughs> and for a man or woman who has let himself be drawn completely out of himself by activity, nothing more is difficult than to sit still and rest, doing nothing at all. The very act of resting, listen, is the hardest and most courageous act he can perform. So what do we do with this exhaustion? Whether it's out of performing, whether it's out of ought to's, whether it's because we've extended ourselves too much. What has God given us to counter the sources of our exhaustion? God baked into all of creation as an aspect of his own character that will breathe life into our tiredness and it will prepare us for renewal. If we are to experience both the regular times of renewal that come from God personally, but also the large-scale renewal that we want, desire to see, we must have the actual energy we need to persevere through the entire journey. This rest that was given to Elijah was preparation for something. We, so therefore, you and I, we need to learn how to rest. This rest that God offers and that what we need to learn how to do is something that's so deeply ingrained in the person of God that it's often easy to overlook and miss how it's baked into all creation. In Genesis 1, we see God creating and ordering everything out of nothing. After each day, what does he say? I'm like, this is good. Interact with me, okay? So, so imagine all the good work that God is doing. Like, he's saying, like, this is good. This is good what I, I'm up to now. Now, listen to what the word of the Lord says on the seventh day of creation. On the final day, Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3. And he says this, On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he worked more. He recognized his sovereignty and just kept going. He's like, I'm all-powerful. I'm all-knowing. I can be everywhere at once. Let's keep at it. No, he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested. Listen to those two words. God rested from all the work that he has done. The omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, through all the amazing characteristics of God, sovereign Lord of the universe, rested. This blew my mind. What does God get out of rest? What, is it, what does it do for him? Exodus 31, I'm glad you asked, tells us this, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he stopped working and was refreshed. God himself was refreshed by taking a day off. Like, don't miss that. That's mind-boggling. Like, He's all-powerful. He spoke, and Jupiter appeared. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to take a day off. Now, we know from Scripture that he does not sleep. 
don't need to go in that. But he rested. Now, it's no surprise when God himself in Jesus comes and makes rest a regular part of his life because it's who he is. Mark 6 tells us that he regularly encouraged his disciples to get away and rest after times of intense ministry. He even curls up in a little ball. This is why I did it. Jesus did it. He curls up in a little ball and falls asleep while his friends are freaking out all around him. That's Mark 4.35 on the boat, if you want to see that. Curled up in a ball and slept. Jesus rested. Now, because God himself rests and he is refreshed by rest... He builds into the fabric of how he wants his people to live under his rule. That's what the Old Testament is about. That's what the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is saying. This is how I want my people to live in difference from the people around me. Okay? So if you are God's people, what does he want you to do? A regular rhythm of rest for God's people included the Sabbath. He commands, he commands, not recommends. He commands his people every seven days to take a day off from working. God knows how much we need rest because he made it for us. And God knows that if you are to encounter him, if you are to be renewed by him, which is what we're striving for, you aren't likely to do it fully if you're exhausted. I mean, imagine, end of a long week, end of a long day. You, you show up and you're like, man, I am so ready for a 24-hour prayer and fasting time. Oh, man, I'm ready to dive into, like, extended prayer right now with people. You don't, it's, like, not going to happen. Like, long day, what do you want to do? I want to go to bed. I want to relax. Well, what happens when you wake up? You're more likely to do that, Right? our exhaustion is going to hold us back from experiencing the very thing that God wants to help us experience. Now, this can be something that's a daily thing as well. A study by the University of Illinois advocates for a break every hour. According to the time-tracking app Desk Time, the most productive people... Now, who likes productivity here? This guy right here, okay? Who, the most productive people work for 52 minutes... Then they take a break for 17 minutes. You know what my favorite is? Scientifically backed, thank you very much. Power naps. What does it look like to get daily rest, daily breaks? If I told you you could do something for 20 minutes and your focus, your efficiency would go up exponentially, you would be like, yeah, I'd do that in a heartbeat. What is it? Take a power nap. This is a a quote. Napping leads to improvements in mood, alertness, performance, such as reaction time, attention, and memory. According to Kimberly Coate, PhD professor of psychology and neuroscience at Brock Brock University. Coate and NASA, the NASA, suggest taking power naps between 10 and 20 minutes long. You'll get the most benefit from a sleep cycle without any grogginess associated with longer sleeping patterns. Why do I say this? Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. Take a nap. Get a rest. Stop being productive. The tyranny of productivity, which I regularly bow my knee to, is killing our souls. 
Sometimes the most productive thing you can do, for those of you that like productivity, is nothing. Sometimes the most holy thing you can do is take a day off. God goes further than this, though. And oftentimes he provides not just daily rest or once a week, but he actually goes even further than that. These are often overlooked passages. Deuteronomy 15 teaches them to have a sabbatical year every seven years. And during this year, if we were like a a tribe, what would happen is during that sabbatical year, it was my responsibility to give, forgive the debt that you have in, in your name against me. So for instance, say you're like something happened and you had to sell your land to me. Every seven years, it was a responsibility that I would forgive that debt and give you the land back. That was how God designed his world. Every seven years, he also commanded them not to labor the fields, to to allow the lands to rest. On top of that, every 50 years would be called what it was a jubilee. You can see this in Leviticus 25, 8 through 13, where all the debts of every person, including foreigners in their land, which is a big deal, all the debts would be released. Think of all the generational debt that our society has right now. The things that are passed on from generation to generation. God's people, how he set up his theocracy, which we're not, and I'm not advocating that we become that, just to be clear, but how he wants his people to work. He says, hey, what you do, I don't want you to pass on the weight of that to everybody else. You need to forgive that. Imagine the rest that that would give you as somebody in every area of your life. Like, man, like, I know there's a day coming where God's going to forgive this, where this isn't going to be carried on. There's going to be, it's just mind-boggling to think that how he would do that. Now, with how God rests and how he leads his people to rest, it's no surprise that study after study shows the benefits of rest or the consequences of enough. Focus on one type of rest. And that's the type, uh, that's sleep. There's two passages. Ecclesiastes 4, 6. says, As one handful of rest is better than two fistful of labor and striving after wind. Psalms 4, 8 says this. This is what the type of sleep God offers you. In peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, will keep me safe. Those that live of us that live in federal way, sometimes we need to pray that prayer. You keep me safe. What happens when you don't get enough rest and sleep you need? Few things. With only six hours of sleep, you experience cognitive deficits like slower reaction time, short and long-term memory suffers, slower decision-making, and worse spatial awareness. Remember, you are an embodied soul. What happens in your body affects your soul, and what happens in your soul affects your body. It's not either or. It's a both and. So... Without enough sleep, there's immediate daily and long-term effects. For those who sleep less than five hours versus those who sleep more than seven hours, this is what happens. If you sleep less than five hours, there's 42% greater chance of obesity, 69% more chance of hypertension, 40% more chance of diabetes, 36% chance increase in elevated lipids. I don't know what that is, but this was given to me. I wanted to include it. 62% chance of greater risk of stroke. Insufficient sleep increases the risk in all the following ways. Mental health disorders, diabetes, obesity, pain, immunodeficiency, cardiovascular disease, and hormonal imbalance. 
Psalm 127 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. As a shepherd of a flock, I love that first verse because like God's the one that builds the house. I often miss the second one, the second part of that verse. What's it saying? You don't need to wake up early sometimes. You don't need to stay up late sometimes. Like stop living out of anxious toil. Remember we talked about the anxiousness of our society. What does he give? Sleep. Question for all this is why? What purpose does rest and sleep play in our lives as disciples and our walk towards renewal? Three things real quick. Number one, rest is so that we can enjoy God and his creation. Enjoy. At the end of every day, what does God say? Good. We often forget that God walked with Adam and Eve just in the cool of the day. I mean, imagine those conversations. Like, imagine what they would have talked about. I, mean, I almost think of uh, Adam and Eve like little kids. Like you ever see little kids and like you're just walking, all of a sudden they see the tiniest little bug and all of a sudden they're just fixated on that bug. And like that's the coolest, most beautiful, most radical thing they've ever seen in their life. And what do you do as parents? Like, oh, like there's a joy that you have when you see that. Now in my flesh, I say, hey, hurry up, we gotta get going. But that's not what God does with them. He probably was like, man, like imagine, look at that vegetable, that's amazing. Like, look at that pine tree. I don't know, there weren't pine trees over there. But you know what I'm saying, like that just the awe that they had. And he probably was just like a parent, just walked with them and just explained the wondrous things that he created. In a culture after the Industrial Revolution, we tend to think through the lens of efficiency. And we look at the land through the lens of efficiency. Look at how it's productive and useful to us. But there's something more than that. Creation is beautiful. And we are to enjoy it. We're to dwell in the beauty. To gaze upon the wonders of God's works. To become a people so in awe of his creation and his beauty that it leads us to a life full of creativity. So we are to enjoy it. We're not to get the most out of it. We're to just be in it. Number two, why do we get rest? Accept your limitations. We all need our rest that, and as a regular reminder that we are not God. God designed that we would get at least a third of our lives sleeping. Why? Because we are finite people with finite abilities who are loved by an infinite God who wants us to rely on him. This is something that's been very hard for me. I'm usually the type of person, 10 years ago, the only way I would rest or take a day off was when I got sick. It's like, it's like my body was, it was a way of saying, hey, you finally need to rest. This is the only way we're going to shut down is to like, have the body shut down. I've had to learn the healthy pattern of a Sabbath, of a day off, because I thought if I worked hard enough, I would get all the desires of my heart. I also didn't know that at the time, my identity was found in what I do and how I perform. Now, I know this is a lifelong journey for me, but I needed to accept my limitations. I needed to come to an end of myself and learn to rest because I'm not infinite. I'm finite. My inability to rest 
shows my need for a Savior. And as we grow older, our bodies are not going to be able to perform in the ways that they used to. I'm not an old man by any stretch, but I've, I've even started to see some of the physical limitations with getting older. And this is a long-term way for God to give long-term care to us. And number three, why rest? Preparation for renewal. This is really important. This is a preparation. If you look at the story of Elijah, the stage of rest is different from the stage of renewal. Let me, let's look at this as, um, extended rest, but like a regular Sabbath. There are seasons in life where we need to take extended times off. This could be vacations, staycations with your family. But the Bible uses this term yoke, and it's to help us understand our work. A yoke was a wooden frame that was used to join two animals to the plow. And so they would work alongside that. And that was the work that they would do. Sometimes we just need to take the yoke off for an extended period of time and rest. Not just daily, not just weekly, but we need to take the yoke off. I remember coming back from my sabbatical, like one of the first days, and I remember the physical sensation of the yoke going back on me to care for God's people. What Paul calls the daily struggle of wanting to care for the church. I remember the sensation of that. But I would have never known there was any sensation if I had never taken it off in the first place. But the thing that I experience, and I think that I really want to say is, we can often think that when we're rested, we're renewed. Like, okay, I, I feel energized. I'm ready to go, ready for my next week. That doesn't mean you've encountered God in renewal. It means, like Elijah, because look what it says in Elijah, verses 7 8. The angel uh, Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate. And he went into the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb. Listen to this. He gave him rest so that it would empower him for the next journey that was ahead. And what we look at next week is the wilderness, the lonely places, the silence and solitude and emptiness of what in the world is happening. Elijah could not have made the journey if he did not get the rest he needed. The wilderness is absolutely essential to renewal. But we won't be able to persevere through it if we don't get the rest that we need. It's God's goodness, but it's also a necessity. This was a fuel for the journey, and we go there next week.